Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just almost dead on 7.30. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. Uh, behind the panels this morning, we have A.B. Bishop. Morning, A.B. Oh, good morning, Pam. Lovely to be back. Yes. Yes, starting to get a bit darker in the morning now. I know. Yes, yes, yes. It <laughs> doesn't take long. It suddenly changes. It doesn't take long, yes, but there was uh, lots of fauna on the road this morning. All right. Uh, foxes and a uh, fox mother and cub, which was very cute. Um, I know they're pests, but they're still cute. <laughs> Those little cubs that they just jump around and dance and very, yeah, very sweet. We've got two cubs um, and the mum, as you know, are living in the creek down the bottom of my garden. And the two cubs have been frolicking on our back lawn every morning. It's quite amazing. Oh, that's adorable, isn't it? <laughs> what does Lucky think of that? Ah, uh, <laughs> Get off He's my very much inside when they're out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yes. But no, it's, it's, it's all fun. And we've got, um, the other thing we've, we've discovered this summer is that we've got an echidna nest in the bank of the oh, creek. Oh, wonderful. Which is very exciting. We've seen, we've seen that he's a huge big old echidna. Uh, we've seen him wandering through the garden quite recently, yep. you know, several times, but we didn't realise he actually had his nest. Um, so our next door neighbours discovered him a couple of weeks ago and there he was on guard outside oh, the, the entrance. So, um, so the male guards... Does he? Well, seems to be. Oh, yes. because we had um, we had a an echidna in the compost heap, and our compost is cold composting bays, and the the walls are corrugated iron. And one day I could hear this almighty noise of scratch, 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 scratch on corrugated iron, and I could see this echidna trying to climb in, and eventually it got in, and it had its little pup there, and ah. it, I've got footage of it suckling its pup. And off it went and it would come back every couple of days and it was just this gorgeous little bundle of not quite spiky. Um, yeah, it was incredible. And then one day it, it took itself off as well. Okay. So, yeah, quite, quite incredible to watch, yeah. They are amazing. They've got yeah. real personalities, haven't yeah. they? Never get bored with them. And I've never seen an echidna climbing up. It was, you know, try, it was trying to climb up into the compost because we'd shut it a little bit, shut the gate so to speak, and um, yeah, it was quite interesting. Excellent. We have to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, Jeremy. <laughs> good morning, Pam, and good morning, A.B., and good morning, everyone. You has, there, has anyone ever tried to pick up an echidna? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't Don't tell rec- me you have. <laughs> I can't recommend it. <laughs> uh, no, I was driving in the, the back of Monbog uh, a couple of years back, and there was an echidna... Uh, just on the edge of the road and trying to climb up a bank actually and oh. couldn't do it. So they're not very good at going up a vertical bank, even the just a 60, uh, 80 centimetres high. Right. And it was and it was likely to walk back onto the bitumen road and get squashed. So yep. I thought, no, I'll just pick up this echidna and put it up where it's heading. No, I can't recommend trying to pick up the echidna. <laughs> Oh, I eventually, I eventually uh, found something in the boot, which has uh, acted as a bit of cushioning, uh, but uh, tried to pick it up straight off. Oh, good grief. They grip the ground. Do and, they? Uh, yeah, apart from anything else, they're very spiky, they're extremely spiky, yeah. and then they grip the ground, so the spikes really work. Oh, <laughs> good defence mechanism. Oh, yeah. You don't very often see them run over, do you? I've seen one in all my time. I think I, there's something quite strange about echidnas. They've got a huge brain for the size of the body. And, uh, and uh, um, someone doing comparative um, 
um, anatomy, uh, an American woman uh, uh, spotted this and travelled from America to South Australia and did some research into them, running echidnas through mazes to see just how smart oh, these things were. Because why, why have they got such a big brain? And for something which eats termites. And um, anyway, they turn out to be quite smart. And uh, really, uh, there's no explanation for it. Okay. For something that does nothing much more than tear about termite mounds and eat termites. But uh, anyway, they're fascinating animals. Yeah, they're yeah, absolutely they're incredible. Yeah. Interesting. We should yeah, respect no our echidnas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Goodness me. Okay. Yeah. We've also got to say a very good morning to Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clombernay. Morning, Graham. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody else there out there in listening land. Seeing that we're uh, um, swapping animal stories this morning, <laughs> um, we are plagued with foxes at our place. Yes. And we've had them wandering around the fowl pens. They leave their scats around. You know, oh, yes. For those that don't know what a scat is, it's, it's fox poo. <laughs> anyway, we decided we'd um, have a little bit of a campaign, but um, we found a fox up a plum tree. Up a plum tree? Yes, up a plum tree. And they will eat plums and they will eat fruit, of course. Yes. And the fox got himself caught and broke his leg on the tree, mm. and he was hanging down from the tree. So we, I had a friend of mine who promptly got up and dispatched him. Right. And um, but it's amazing how foxes, even if you look at a bit below uh, fruit trees and apple trees, you'll find that they they will um, climb up the trees and they usually leave their mark around. Yes. And we've got um, apple trees along the roads around Kilmore. In fact, um, between Kilmore and Broadford, the kids counted the apple trees. There were 60 apple trees, and they counted them at the time of blossom. So okay. To, so their, their counting strategy was pretty accurate. Um, but that's interesting with foxes, and, and this particular tree, the foxes have been eating the plums. Right. Mm. I wonder that's if the smell smart. of the fox would keep the possums away. Probably. Yeah, you'd think so, mm. wouldn't you? It'd be a good it's possum almost, deterrent. It's almost <laughs> biblical, isn't it? There's mm. something about the foxes, uh, the, uh, what is it, little foxes and the grapes? Uh, mm. Oh, the grapes, yes, yes, know. yes. Well, when we had our, had our two dingoes, we used to, and when, when we had a mesh fence put up after the fires, we used to let them out and wander around the nursery to keep the kangaroos out. Now the dingoes are gone, the kangaroos are back. Ah. But, the, but the kangaroos could smell the dingoes in, you know, in the garden and they kept well away. Okay. Oh, that's but now we have some big boys come into the garden now. Right. Oh, yeah, they're two metres high, some of these fellas. Whoa. But they're bucks that have been rejected by the, by the mob. They've done their job, so they're yep. finishing their last days down along the creek where they can get a drink of water. Yes. Well, yeah. that's the thing. It's, I mean, it's been surprisingly dry recently, and, mm. and so we're finding the kangaroos are coming up even as far as our place as mm. well, um, because there's a whole there's, there's a couple of big mobs just down the road a bit, but they're they're heading our way just mm. looking for any green grass they can find. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, 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 along the Hume Highway, there's been a lot of them killed in the last 12 months or so. Mm. Uh, but what happens is that then um, we've got some eagles in the area, and the carcasses are attracted to the eagles. And they'll, the eagles will see them at night time, and the eagles come down and have a feed. But, um, you know, we just don't want um, vehicles running into the eagles on the highway. No. Um, or the kangaroos. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's sort of the kangaroo business is, is quite a challenge, isn't it? They tell us there's, um, for every human being in Australia, there's a kangaroo. 
So we've got nearly about 30 million kangaroos in Australia and they're dying in huge numbers up in Queensland with the drought apparently. Yes, I'm mm. not surprised. Well, yeah. I drive through Wonga Park to come here and they're creating a huge new estate there and it was literally just paddocks and, and bushland and, you know, filled with mobs of roos and it just, you know, you just think, well, there's this whole, you know, huge area now that suddenly the roos don't, get to graze in, mm. they've got to go somewhere, yes. you know. It's it's really quite sad that we're just completely taking over their land. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. There's some work being done by the CSIRO, and one of the reasons apparently kangaroos come to the side of the road, especially after we've had some rain, and they will come along the edges of the roads, um, you know, from the, from the farmer's fence towards the road, because they'll go to pick up the green pick. Mm. And, of course, they're after the beautiful um, chlorophyll in the grass and because they'll never get that in the paddock when there's animals in the paddock because the animals are, are cleaning it off very quickly. That's right. So it's a particularly vulnerable time when there's been some rain and uh, that's when um, I've I, I found around our place there's a lot more kangaroos at the side of the road actually hit by cars. Yes, <laughs> mm. yes, because, of course, your, your rain runoff... Um, your road surface is, is slightly curved, so mm. all the water collects on either side yeah. and produces all this wonderful lush new yes. growth, and mm. that's exactly what they're after. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. <laughs> I must get to a few community announcements uh, because uh, everything is really starting up for the year. There's quite a bit on. Uh, and some of this is today, so if you haven't made up your mind what you're wanting to do today, there's a few things on. Um, now, uh, firstly, the Werribee Park Heritage Orchard, their summer grafting is back on and it's on today, starting 10 o'clock this morning, running through until 3pm. Now, they've got lots of stone fruit scion to pick from and uh, lots of options for choosing uh, the next tree. Now, the trees cost $15, freshly grafted, and they come complete with notes for aftercare and planting, but there's a lot more happening there today as well. Uh, they've got workshops on companion planting. They've got free grafting demonstrations all day, no booking required. Uh, the local CWA are coming on board to provide food and refreshments. Um, the Kareni gardeners um, are hoping to have a stall selling their plant varieties from the kitchen garden. There'll be indigenous plants and garden favourites from the Werribee Park mansion grounds also for sale. Uh, plus there's going to be the usual edible weed walks, tours of the orchard, custom grafting of stone fruit trees and fruit trees for sale. Uh, now you uh, go, let me see, to... Um, uh, if you go to Gate 5 um, down at Werribee Park um, and there'll be Rotary members there directing traffic so that you won't have to walk too far with new trees. So um, that's all happening today, 10am uh, through to 3 o'clock this afternoon. Now also today down at Geelong Botanic Gardens, the Friends have got a discovery walk. Uh, this is part of their special collection, Pelagoniums and Salvias. Now, um, you meet at 2pm at the front steps uh, and it's gold coin donation. For further information, 5222-6053. Now, uh, also, uh, let me see, Cottage by the Sea, Bellarine Branch. Um, now, this is a not-for-profit group 
that uh, actually uh, has been giving holidays to children in need for over 125 years. It receives no government funding. It's dependent on money raised by its branches and donations from individual supporters. Now, they're having an open garden day today. Uh, there's actually five gardens open. It's starting at 10 a.m., running through to 4.30. And all these gardens, are, most of them are in Drysdale. Uh, a couple of them are in Bellarine. Uh, now, there'll be Devonshire Teas at, uh, and a garden stall at Kilmurray, which is one of the gardens, and tickets are at the gate. $20 gives you admission to all five gardens, which is fantastic, or $5 per garden. Now, uh, the address, I'll give the main address, which is the Kilmurray Garden, because... Uh, uh, from there, you can organise, uh, you know, addresses of the other gardens as well to go to. But Kilmurray is at 405 Scotchman's Road in Bellarine. That's 405 Scotchman's Road in Bellarine. And as I say, the other four gardens are all round Bellarine or in Drysdale. So that would be a wonderful day out and just supporting a good cause. Now... Uh, just, uh, I think I've got one or two more. Uh, let me see. Uh, next Sunday, weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, uh, the uh, Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens are holding a botanic art workshop for beginners. Now, this runs both days from 9.30 to 4.30. Students will learn the basics of botanical art including drawing to composition, painting techniques and introduction to colour therapy. And students who enrol in this beginner's workshop uh, may have completed some level of art but may wish to learn a little more um, about botanical art. There are no prerequisites to enrol in the class, uh, just an eagerness to learn. Now the cost is 120 if you're a member of the Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens or $150 for non-members. The materials list is available at the Friends office. It'll take place in the Geelong Botanic Gardens meeting room and uh, to book in or to make further inquiries, the Friends phone number is 5222-6053 or you can go to the website which is www.friendsgbg.org.au. That's friendsgbg.org.au. And uh, a little later in the program, I might get back with a few more that are happening uh, a bit further down the track. Uh, Graham, I noticed you've um, yet again. I know this is this is early notice, but you've got your Art and Roses tour coming up again in April. Yes. An Art and Roses tour that's going to happen at um, at um, Kilmore, and we're also having a shearing demonstration at um, Kevin Butler's premises at Kilmore East. Kevin Butler is is of Blazeaid fame. Blazeaid for the, for those people who who don't know about it uh, is now, now doing absolutely magnificent work with rural restoration after. Um, disasters and they're not only working with bushfire areas, they're working in flood areas and uh, in Kevin Butler's words um, Kevin Butler's a, a sheep farmer he runs about 3,000 sheep at Kilmore East um, in Kevin Butler's word, words um, 
the Blaze Aid organisations being um, funded by um, retired mums and dads from the farming community, which I think has been an absolute tribute to um, what's happened in that world, uh, world of uh, emergency relief. And uh, I must say that the Rotary Club at Kilmore Broadford um, have been uh, backing Blaze Aid um, ever since um, Kevin started uh, at the 2009 fires. So in conjunction with that art and uh, craft festival, um, people can go and spend some time at Kevin's place and, and see the works of where Blaze Aid began in Kevin's shearing shed. And they're doing some shearing demonstrations. And uh, as part of the tour, people can come to the Silky's Rose Farm at Clonbanane and people can st- um, have uh, either morning tea or afternoon tea there as well. So that's part of a, a, um, a, a day's activity if people want to be involved. And bus tours are being subsidised to the uh, extent of $10 a head. So we've got people from Garden Club even up as far as... Um, uh, Charleston, uh, Bendigo, there's place, there's garden clubs that are coming and uh, spending time at the art show, which is in the Memorial Hall in Kilmore. So that's... It's a great day. It's mm. absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I used to run lots of sheep myself, and mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, five, ten thousand of them. Mm-hmm. I always thought that uh, watching a really good shearer mm-hmm. uh, is, is watching a well, an athlete uh, oh, do gosh, something. Yes. With incredible elegance, it's mm-hmm. an elegance to shearing, which yes. is if if it's done by someone who really knows what they're doing, right. it's, it's just extraordinary. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's really hard work too. I'm <laughs> but the other thing that always amazes me, um, if you, if you see um, you know a video of someone who knows what they're doing, the sheep seem to know that 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 shearer also knows and they have confidence and they just seem to yeah, lie back there oh, absolutely I might as well relax. go with the flow <laughs> they absolutely relax they do the difference between a good shearer and a bad shearer is quite extreme I might add oh yeah. But, 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 uh, but a good shearer doing yeah, 150, 200 a day is, is really something to watch. Yeah. So, yes, I can absolutely recommend people get along and see that. It's, you know, part of Australia's history. Hmm. Have you turned your it's hand to shearing, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never got past the, 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 the really grim and awful stage. <laughs> no, the sheep resented what I was trying to do from the memory into the way. But really, <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, wood chopping in a way, isn't it, when you go to the show and watch those wood choppers just get through those huge logs of timber yeah. at speed. It's yeah, it's, uh, another, form of, another form of ballet. That's yeah, exactly right. Exactly yes. right. And yes. I might say the Australian shearer, it's because the merinos are pretty difficult to shear. This is not very well understood, but, but dare I say English breed sheep, as anyone who runs merinos, anything that's not a merino is an English breed sheep. And they're, they're all much easier to shear. Merinos are really hard to shear. Mm. And so the, the Merino shearers, the Australian shearers, uh, they could always get a holiday in England travelling around and relaxing, enjoying uh, shearing English sheep. There's mm-hmm. so much, it's, it's such a simple thing to do in comparison. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting with the Merino sheep because uh, a lot of the sheep farmers have had to diversify into, into other areas because, of course, we're not using wool as much. Yeah. I mean, there is a bit of a push with Australian wool. You know, it's um, used on the used on the runways and used in a lot of fashion shows and whatnot. And um, 
um, we are getting different uh, ways of um, manufacturing it and you know making it much finer so it's easier to wear but uh, a lot of the farmers especially you know western victoria i'm thinking have had to diversify into other areas and you know some have gone into meat production oh, and others have gone into um, sheep milk and oh, that it's sort one of the things. saddest so things that it, the collapse of the wool market back in 1990 yes i remember that vividly yeah, well, you'd know the, um, the, the what do you call it? It's not a, a bale of wool. What, what's the, um, a huge... Well, it is almost, a bale of wool. It, it, it is a bale yeah. of wool. It is a bale, yeah. That's yeah. what it's called, yeah. And um, it went for some astronomical amount. In, yeah, super in fine wool. Yeah. yeah, the story always was the bale of wool was the amount of uh, wool you could fit into a bale, or rather into two bales, that when they were slung together would fit over a camel, and it, would <laughs> it was a camel load of wool, two bales that is. Yep. Mm. Now, I think that might be apocryphal, but, <laughs> mm. but wow. uh, no, it's a part of Australia's history, you know, get along and see this. Mm. Mm. Oh yes, be fantastic. Uh, now, I must quickly mention that um, Open Gardens Victoria are, are back on deck for the new year. And um, they've got uh, their very first opening coming up next Sunday, the 21st of February. Now, this is going to be uh, to the Melbourne Club, um, which is very interesting. Of course, the Melbourne Club, Club is hidden away at 36 Collins Street in Melbourne. And uh, their garden is rather interesting. It, it was uh, a fallout from a Melbourne Club ball in 1895 which uh, determined the future style and design of the... This is quite a rare surviving example of 19th century city garden. Now, it was first established in the 1860s. According to club legend, resident members planted three plane trees in order to prevent the erection of marquees and therefore stop any recurrence of disturbing revelry. So <laughs> I don't know what they got up to at that ball, but it must have been good. <laughs> But uh, there's uh, plantings bordering the lawn under the significant trees. Uh, they're predominantly green and white with a preference for scented plants and species that perform well in all seasons and tolerate the shade cast by the trees and surrounding tall buildings. Now, as well as the garden being open next Sunday, John Forden, who's a very well-known horticulturist arborist, will give a garden tour and talk at 11am and again at 2pm. Uh, proceeds from the opening uh, will benefit the Olivia Newton-John uh, Cancer Research Institute. Now, you enter via Ridgeway Place, which is off Little Collins Street. Now, it's open from 10 through to 4.30. Uh, entry price is $8. Children under 18 are free. And uh, again, as per last year, our good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us one double pass, one free double pass to give away. So uh, the first person who'd like to call in to 94190155 um, and give your details to Virginia off air and we'll get that uh, double pass uh, sent off to you in the mail. So uh, if you'd like a free double pass to go and look at the Melbourne Club Garden next Sunday, 94190155. Uh, Jeremy, last week, last Sunday, um, we were talking on air about uh, this new pest that's been discovered, and unfortunately 
It has been discovered in the Dandenong Ranges. Now, I don't know if you've heard anything about it, but it's a hazelnut mite. Have you heard any? Oh, uh, just a little, but no, I'm not really across it very well. Yes. I mean, we didn't know it was in Australia, but as I say, it's been detected in uh, the Dandenong Ranges. And we're intrigued because it affects... um, quite a few different species that's 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 the interesting part so it's not just hazelnuts but it's, but it's a this big family there isn't it the witch hazels yeah and, and that's right the, um, oh i can think of quite a large number of ornamentals for the gillers uh, well they say they say it's affecting walnuts spruce pine yarrow willows Ooh. oaks and beans of all beans. things beans which i find most intriguing well, until you got to the beans, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, that's the, the whole flora of the Dandenongs. <laughs> well, yeah, that's well. right. That's right. But um, they do request now, um, uh, it apparently um, causes conspicuous white or yellowish feeding spots. Uh, this is particularly on the hazelnut leaf. Um, and the mites attack the actual leaf both the young and the mature varieties, and they're found mostly on the undersurface, along with the eggs and the cast skins. Now, the eggs tend to be red in colour. Few are often located on the developing nuts and the associated brats. Now, um, ID, of course, and monitoring is really important at this stage because it's it's newly uh, discovered. And they do ask the general public if... uh, if you think you've, you've found a case of it, to report it. Uh, now, there's a phone number you can ring, which is 1-800-084-881, or they suggest take some photos and email those photos together with a contact phone number and the pest's location to plant.protection at ecodev, that's E-C-O-D-E-V dot vic dot gov dot A-U. So I'll give those uh, phone numbers and contacts out again. If by any chance you think you might have some in your garden or on a nearby farm or somewhere, uh, the number to report it is 1-800-084-881, and that's a toll-free number or take some photos, email those photos together with a contact phone number and the pest location to plant.protection at ecodev.vic.gov.au. So um, oh, it's always a worry when we get a new, um, a new uh, pest of some sort in the country. And it's happening at a depressing uh, well, regularity nowadays too. Oh, it's, it uh, is. It's, uh, Yes, uh, you know, there's been huge restrictions uh, put on the movement of uh, plants uh, uh, into Australia, certainly in the rat world to a fair degree. And rightly and yet, so. And yet, and yet at the same time, in. yes, these, these, it's the, these sort of uh, diseases and pests which are the ones slipping through the net. And, mm. and uh, that's one of the sad things about throwing open the, the borders of the world, international trade, is it's actually helping generate the situation, I feel. <laughs> the one big argument against uh, 
uh, freeing up international trade. Exactly. Mm. exactly. And I wonder how it actually got in in the first place. Was it on somebody's shoe, on some soil, or Absolutely. was it on climate I, I mean, matter? That, yeah, it, it, yeah it, 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 these, these things travel so easily. That's yeah. right. And yeah, uh, um, yeah. yeah. So something we, we, we do have to take incredibly seriously. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show, 8.55 on the AM band. Uh, time is coming up to 8 o'clock and it's high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we have uh, Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill in the studio. We also have Graham Sargent from Silky Rose Farm in Clombenane and, of course, AB Bishop. So do give us a call. That number is 9419 now, we do have a special guest. Um, I might just invite her into the studio. Yes, we have got uh, today, we've got uh, Lindsay Poor from uh, the Begonia Society, and um, she's come in today to, to have a bit of a chat to us. Hi, Lindsay. Nice to Good see morning. you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good. And are you going to give us some information about what's happening out your way? Of course I am. Sure. So, on the weekend of Saturday the 27th of February from 10 till 4, and Sunday the 28th of February from 10 till 4, the Begonia, Melbourne Begonia Society is having its annual show. And the title of the show this year is Colour Your World with Begonias. So it's at the Moravan Senior Citizens Hall, 964 Nepean Highway, Moravan. Do you want the Melway reference? Yes, that'd be great. And the Melway reference yep. is 77D6. Now, the beauty about having uh, a begonia show is that you really can't buy most of these begonias in nurseries. So, they're all the plants are propagated by the members. Mm -hmm. So, you get a terrific array of begonias, and often them, most of them are hard to get. Now, there's all types. So, there's canes, there's shrub like begonias, there's semperflorens, there's thick stemmed, there's the rexes, and of course, there are the tuberous. So you get all the eight varieties of begonias for sale, plus beautiful displays of display plants with their names and their conditions. And the, the best thing of all is a wonderful stage that is set out with a theme, Colour Your World with Begonias. Fantastic. So there's a lovely stage to inspire people to buy. Um, apart from that, for the food variety, there's Devonshire teas and a sausage sizzle. Um, from about 11 to 2 or 11 to 1. And the other best thing, the admission is free. Now, if you're really interested in begonias, Saturday morning is the rush time, 10 to 12. It's a big rush time. So if you're really interested in begonias, this is the best time to go. Yep. And so you can purchase in there. And was, was there any competition at all? There are raffle prizes yep. as well on the Saturday and the Sunday, up to about $100 in money prize. So there's lots of things to see and do for the day. There's also demonstrations. One of our uh, lovely growing ladies will give you a demonstration of how to propagate begonias from stem cuttings, leaf wedges, etc. So there are displays and talks. So a lot of information about how to propagate our wonderful array of begonias. Fantastic. And I know, I mean, there's some begonias that are more suited to tropical and subtropical areas. Is, mm -hmm. is that correct? Which well, that is correct. That's where they come from. Yeah. They come from all over those subtropical and tropical areas of the world. And none, of course, have been found in Australia. Um, there are begonia societies in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia. And, but 
the myth is that they always have to have hot, humid conditions. That's not always true. Some of the begonias come from cool alpine areas in Peru. Okay. So there is a type of begonia that you can have in every situation. Yep. So you can have some delicate rexes growing in a terrarium. You can have canes growing outside in pots or in your garden. So there's a range of begonias for different situations. You don't necessarily have to have a glass house. Yes, yes. And I know that some can actually even withstand, you know, very extremely low temperatures. They can, but the one thing that they don't like is frost. Frost, yeah. It's frost. Yeah. So there's a range, and if you get some nice books, there's a wonderful book put out for begonias, you get the growing conditions. So you can, you can find a begonia that suits what you have in your house. And what are your favourites? Oh, I'm very keen on the rhizome begonias because their leaves have such wonderful colours and shapes. And, of course, then once a year you get some lovely flowers that might be in the shades of pink to white. Yeah. Um, yellow is a very rare colour in begonias. Um, so we all have our favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on your situation at home. I have a little narrow area between two houses in Middle Park, so I have vertical shelves with all of my begonias sitting on vertical shelves. So they get the right microclimate to grow, and they're just a wonderful colour array all year round. Do they take much care? Um, you've got to keep the water up to them without being waterlogged. Sure. Um, but not overwatered, otherwise you'll rot them off. Yeah. Um, sometimes caterpillars can have a little bit of a, a silent attack and make holes in the leaves, so you've got to be aware of that. Fertilise um, in the general way. Um, so really, they're, they're fairly easy to care for if you know the conditions for each of one of your groups. Mm, I think I have seen, <coughs> been to a couple of glass houses over the years and they've been absolutely filled. I know um, Fitzroy Gardens occasionally have, have a display in there. And Too true, yeah, yes. Yeah. And um, our own, I'm also a guide at the Botanic Gardens and there's not many begonias in our Botanic Gardens, but the Sydney Botanic Gardens has a whole, uh, a whole collection of them um, growing outside under trees. So that gives people the the conditions in which you can grow begonias. Yeah, sure. So in Melbourne, you'd more recommend that they're in a protected microclimate. Yes, a protected microclimate. Or some will... You can actually plant some canes just straight into the garden. Yep, okay. So there's the whole range And do they prefer sort of dappled shade or...? Yes, dappled shade, because, I mean, full sun is going to burn the leaves. But they probably can withstand midday sun. Just for that hour. Yeah, yes. yeah absolutely. So and how long have you been growing them for? Oh, well, I'm not really a growing expert. I don't propagate many, but yeah. I just like collecting them. Sure. Do you use them at all, Jeremy? Oh, we have a few. In fact, I was, I was sitting here thinking of a great dexter in England a couple of years back, and the great dexter is... Uh, in the last few years, as the, the gardeners there have been putting together collections of pots, and some, there's a huge uh, array of pots generally at the uh, entrance to the, uh, the old 13th century <laughs> manor house. Mm. And then in various parts of the gardens, as you walk, wrong, uh, walk around, you come across these amazing displays of potted plants. Yes. And I, I, I was there, I had a few minutes to spare, racing around taking photographs a couple of years back, and a, the, a few weeks ago I was carefully going through these photographs trying to figure out you know, 40, 50, 60 pots and everything growing perfectly and what were they using? Oh, about 50% begonias. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you the same story. I have a daughter who lives in England, in Winchester, and they 
their, their main streets are just a bloom with hanging baskets, and they're all beautiful, blousy begonias. Yeah. Uh, they obviously have a little watering system going into the pots. But, yes, used a lot in, in bedding plants. Well, these, these displays are great. Yes, they are just yes, beyond belief. I know, I know. And it, it's almost as though there's someone around, some, someone who gets up very early at six o'clock, <laughs> <laughs> rearranging the pots to make sure every leaf is in exactly the right position. Yes. I, it was just unearthly. Yes. And begonias all the way. Yes, no, that's absolutely true. So a lot of them are used for mm. bedding plants, yeah. apart from collection of rexes or collection of canes or something. So, yeah. again, a wide variety of uses. Yes, yeah, so, and the rex ones, they're mostly growing for their foliage. That's great. Oh, yes. yes. Their flowers are fairly... They're not insignificant, but yeah. they're not the main feature. But they, they are the ones that need the special requirements, and most people will grow them in terrariums. Okay, yes. So they get that humidity... Uh, the soil underneath would probably be just some gravel and some sphagnum, so yes. you get keep up that humidity. Um, and of course, you can grow your ter- your terrarium inside, so you can have a colourful display inside. Yeah, I like the idea of terrariums because I live in a mud brick house and it's very dusty, and you spend half your life wiping dust off plants' leaves. I'm thinking, yeah, terrariums mm. might be the way to go. Well, there seem to be a bit of the rage at the moment. Oh, absolutely! You go yes. to the markets and you see little terrariums, even with various succulents in them. So That's obviously, right, it's a yeah. bit of the rage at terrariums at the moment. Yes, yes. You, you do wonder though how long the succulents will last in the terrarium inside. Yes. <laughs> oh good So now with the uh, show Lindsay Yes So that's um, I'll just repeat again So that's the uh, Colour Your World with Begonias And that's at the Moorabbin Senior Citizens Hall At 964 Nepean Highway Moorabbin Malway 77D6 uh, It's free entry It's on Saturday the 27th of February And Sunday the 28th from 10 well, Saturday is from 10 till 4 and Sunday is from 10 till 3. And if there's inquiries, you can phone Leslie on 9570-6822 or Marilyn on 97586642. And have there been any, um, within the Begonia Growers, any competitions for them? Or it's more just showing, showing off what they've got? Um, usually in a meeting we will have um, one of those groups of plants will be focused yes. and members will bring along their beautiful plants and they'll talk about that particular group, say they might have a, a session on canes. We often have a panel discussion on problems that you might meet with growing begonias. There's always plants to buy. So that's the other beauty of belonging to a begonia society because, as I said before, most plant nurseries do not sell these types of begonias. So belonging to a society, you can get very, very cheap and unusual plants. So that's the benefit of belonging there. And as I said, the show, all the plants at the show are grown by the members. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, you can buy them and take them away on the day. Yes, absolutely. You're not going to be destroying the displays. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Oh, fantastic. So what's the life cycle of begonias? Oh, now you're asking me a hard (laughs) question. I think... I guess it varies. (laughs) (laughs) I think I I, I wouldn't like... I'm not an expert, as I said, in growing, but canes can be quite Mm long-lived. If you don't prune a cane, they can get up to two metres in height. Rhizome ones will keep growing out of your pot or their their horizontal rhizomes and once they get to the end of the pot you can cut that piece of rhizome off and you can start a new plant. So you can refurbish your begonias all the time. They're very easy to strike Mm -hmm. with leaf cuttings, uh, wedges or little stem cuttings. So they're easy to keep going all the time. 
And, of course, a lot of members get seed from overseas and grow species begonias from seed. So there's all those exciting horticultural aspects as well, as well as just enjoying them. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a, um, a big range for, yeah, whatever conditions that you have. Yeah, fantastic. All right, um, Lindsay, well, thank you so much for Thank you for asking us, us to, to, yeah, to, to yeah. spruik the show. And, um, yeah, good luck for Saturday and Sunday. Thank you yeah, very much. Yep, should be a great day. So, um, yeah, Jeremy, so what's uh, happening in your world at the moment? Ah, well, it's uh, well it turned into a glorious season after a slightly <laughs> nerve-wracking spring and early summer. So that that's a joy. Uh, he had uh, almost three inches of rain in the old language uh, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so good soil moisture and everything's looking lush. And it's uh, it's always a, a kind of a rule of thumb, it seems to me, if the road verges in, in the uh, top of the dandelion stay green right throughout the summer, that's a nice, lovely summer. And that's going to be the case this year. And uh, certainly it's reflected in the garden. The, the summer borders are just tremendous at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sort of getting towards the, uh, the, the sort of the climax of the summer perennials. So the late season crocosmias are flowering. Mm-hmm. And we've been building up a bit of a collection of those. So, you know, we've got one or two of the early ones. Lucifer is always the first one, of course. So that's flowering in December and into January. But by about mid-January, it's finished. Uh, but uh, I was looking at um, Solfatera and Star of the East. And uh, someone gave me one a couple of years ago, which is I've, I've noticed flowering. And I've lost the label for it. Which is <laughs> So if anyone can remember, a, a late-season flowering crocosmia with flowers almost the size of Star of the East, which are really big. Uh, but Star of the East is a soft orange, I suppose, a soft apricot almost. Uh, whereas this one is is... Is a burnt orange, almost red. It's just a, a, a dark foliage, um, and um, and very substantial flowers, and just brilliant. And I, I, I was given a couple of little bits of it. <laughs> Didn't write the name down quickly enough, and that was the end of that. But uh, a brilliant plant. So I'm going to have to track its track its name down. Um, but beyond that, uh, well. Uh, the grasses, of course, coming into flower, and and uh, they 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 um, dominate the next few weeks, and we're growing quite a few panicums at the moment, uh, along with all the miscanthus and the penicetums, and but the um, panicums are a really interesting group. So I actually brought a couple in myself, a rubrum and rostral brush, years and years back, but there's a few. Uh, there's a, there's a new one which is one or two nurseries are starting to do. Um, it'll be a while before it's generally available, but uh, Panicum Amarum, if I can remember its name, but that's a lovely blue grass, uh, slightly uh, upright, and, but just slightly pendulous, mm-hmm. but a beautiful blue, and I think it'll end up around about, um, uh, about three feet high, 900 mils or so. Um, Oh, what else? Oh, it sounds, it sounds <laughs> well, like a lot. Yeah, so a the garden, the garden is yeah. looking pretty good. So, uh, and uh, and of course, just the usual things: uh, hedge clipping. Uh, we we got into the hedge clipping pretty early this year, so uh, so we're actually getting a bit of growth on our, he- our hedges. So we're going to have to do a second clipping, which is again a sign of a really good season. Yeah, I mean it is startling considering how 
dare I say how awful it was that's back right, in the spring well, and, right, and, yeah. and, and of course disastrous for so many agricultural communities. Yeah. But um, uh, mid-season rain really suits us and, and that's what we had. Yeah. Um, a few things in the nursery. Uh, there's uh, quite a few sedums. Um, actually, I noticed a couple of sedums. Um, dare I say one of the big commercial <laughs> nurseries that uh, I was uh, um, uh, very new ones which have somehow snuck into the nursery tray without any fanfare whatever, whatsoever um, but um, Pure Joy and Thundercloud from memory and there uh, if you look them up in any specialist reference books they, they, they get rave reviews mm. um, so we Got a big, big range of these, which are so good for our conditions. Um, so hunt around for those. Um, they're, they're not quite flowering yet, but the, the foliage is very, very dramatic. The growth habit of these is brilliant. And in the nursery, I noticed the diggers are they're doing a few cool climate bananas. And I've just been quickly well, I glancing. I often wonder of the success of those. <laughs> well, yeah. I, well, I thought, I, I don't know much about bananas. I remember going to Carnarvon in Western Australia many, many, many years ago and looking at the banana uh, plantations there, which is it's very strange. It's like uh, bananas growing in a desert. You know, they grow on the edge of the uh, Gascoigne River. And it's, uh, they create their own, own microclimate and they rely on the water from the bed of the river. Uh, so it's an industry that it was just, a, just growing enough bananas for Perth and <laughs> no more really. But uh, according to what I've just been uh, checking, there's about 40 species of bananas and mm. it's actually a native. Mm. There is a native banana too. There you uh, go. Yeah, to, uh, either, well, they don't say. Uh, but either the Northern Territory or Northern Queensland, there's, there is a native banana. Yep. But it's, a, a number of these species are quite ornamental, and there's a little bit of work going on with cool climate bananas, uh, more suited to our gardens. Mm. So, um, so there's uh, one or two of these available in the nursery. Well, I know, I know some of the gardeners in the community gardens around Melbourne have had quite a bit of success with... Uh, growing bananas and actually achieving a crop from them. And, of course, Stephen's got a banana up in his garden up in Mount Mazda, <laughs> which oh. is really pushing the limit. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> well, that's Stephen, isn't it? That's Stephen, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, he had to do it, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yes, no, some of the community gardens around Melbourne, I think a lot of it is to do with the positioning, obviously. You need mm. that microclimate. Um, so that they, you know, they're in just the most favourable conditions, but they've had some good success. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for him to grow, uh, ripen the coconut. But <laughs> <laughs> now you're pushing it. Well, pineapples is the other thing. Yes, people yes. do attempt that in Melbourne yeah. too. But um, I think you get it. I think we once discussed it years ago on on, on this show, and. Uh, I think the, the general consensus back then was that uh, if you did get a fruit at all, it was about the size of a hand grenade. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? There's a garden pavilion somewhere in uh, near Edinburgh in Scotland, which is based is it one of these giant fruit things. It's a, it's a giant uh, pineapple. Brilliantly done as, as a garden pavilion and, the, and, and a glasshouse flowing out from this incredible giant pineapple okay. uh, and this was of course goes back 150 years and uh, uh, you know, this was the ultimate rich man's folly to be able to ripen a, a, a pineapple in, in Edinburgh yes uh, but uh, that's what it was a pineapple house wow yeah it just needed 
lots and lots of most probably had its own coal mine sort of supplying heat to keep the thing alive during the winter. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wow, okay. Hmm. Have you got any events coming up um, in the garden, Jeremy? Uh, well, the, there's, uh, diggers are doing their uh, workshops every, at the beginning of each month. Yes. And quite honestly, I'm not too sure quite uh, what, the, the, uh, what they've got on next month, but it's all on the website. So if you check the Cloud Hill website or diggers website, and that information will be there. But... Um, no, those, those are really taking off and working pretty well. Good. And so they're doing two, three workshops uh, at the beginning of each um, month, generally the first weekend of each month. Mm-hmm. And Permi um, uh, Pete, boy, oh boy, are his workshops popular? And uh, he gives everyone good value. So he was on a... Um, well, the workshop before last now, but uh, I noticed that he kept everyone busy for about... Uh, about twice as long as it was actually scheduled for, and everyone walked off smiling, so I thought, oh, fantastic. Yep, <laughs> yep, that's the main thing, isn't so, it? Yeah, so, yes, and, and beyond that, it's, it's um, really the, the gardens. I, mean, I suppose one thing that is worthwhile mentioning to people if they've not been to Cloud Hill recently is we, we have um, uh, uh, quite a lot of artwork in the garden nowadays. Um, and we've got work by some half dozen different artists, and well, uh, yeah, best part of a hundred pieces, mm. and that that's that's been true for the last uh, twelve months or so. Um, but um, that that's a sort of another layer of interest for for those who are oh well looking for something fairly dramatic and and uh, and, and a little bit serious, I suppose, for the garden. You're, you're be stretched in a couple of years, Jeremy, to find to find somewhere to put um, the next exhibition when you have your art <laughs> in the garden, aren't you? We, we do. Yeah, you're quite right, actually. You can end up with a place looking cluttered. And um, I did walk through a garden a, a, a couple of months ago, absolutely stuffed with sculpture, and walked out thinking, "Gee, the place would be much more interesting." With uh, if they got rid of three quarters of it, right, and they just kept the really nice things. Yes, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, in fact, you've, uh, we've gone as far as we dare, I think, mm. and we do rely on the fact that we have it's 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 quite different art, and so we have um, um, pieces by Mr, which is generally text carved into stone, which is quite subtle and. That might be a bench. That blends beautifully into mm. the garden, though, his work. Yeah. It, it's not like a, a huge metallic structure. Absolutely. And, yep. and, 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 in fact, one of the loveliest pieces is simply a garden bench, uh, which he did a long time ago, and it's a little bit of George Herbert, uh, the well, 17th century English uh, poet, and um, Oh, Let Me Rise as Larks uh, Harmoniously. And just those words carved into a big piece of slate, uh, but big enough for two people to sit on. Right. And very subtly, you just look at this thing and think, oh, nice garden bench. And then you see the um, the text, and it's quite powerful. So people sit there, take mm. a breather, and then rise <laughs> harmoniously. <laughs> harmoniously, yeah. In tune well, with nature. Yeah. Like well, we a have lark. Our, like a lark. Well, we have they our, mightn't get to fly <laughs> just, but... <laughs> I think yeah, it is one a bit of a, an art in itself, isn't it? Knowing what art to put in your garden. Oh, yes. yes. Sculptural yeah. pieces oh, yes. Because, yeah, yeah you, people can overdo it. And, you know, you, you see it and you think, oh, yes, this would be a wonderful structure. And I think the bigger it is, 
in a way, it really needs to be by itself. You know, some people like to put, you know, two or three sculptural pieces in the garden, and if the garden isn't big enough to handle it, I just, yeah, I think it doesn't work. I mean, it's like um, art in your own homes. You know, you, d- you don't want to create a really cluttered environment. Yeah, do you? you do have to be careful. Yep. There's two or three pieces in the nursery now, two money pieces by Rudy Jess, so they're very contemporary uh, stainless steel wood features mainly. There's one piece by... Um, Ted Seckham, and that's porcelain, but again, a, 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 a little fountain, um, a crystalline glazed uh, porcelain piece is set into a fountain. Um, uh, Rudy, uh, we, we've been working with Rudy for a long time, uh, from the days he used to make garden benches, so that was <laughs> about 20 years ago now. Yeah, he, he, uh, he started off in Australia in a little tumble-down cottage in Montrose and gradually pulled it apart and rebuilt it and turned it into a Rudy Jass house if you, with these uh, sort of uh, fish scales hanging off the front wall, which was curved and <laughs> inspired by the Guggenheim Museum. Right. In, in, but a very, very cheap version of the Guggenheim <laughs> Museum. <laughs> I'm but but uh, beautifully done, and, and uh, that, that's, that's uh, Rudy to a T. And, uh, uh, but he's just sold that house, and he's moved down to Mount Martha. I mean, he actually oh. so, uh, visited him, he and Nanny, his wife, in, the, in his new house uh, in Mount Martha. And, oh, wow, a magnificent view, and, and uh, surrounded by... It's the dress circle of Mount Martha, and, and so he's done extremely well with his pieces. So uh, anyone interested in contemporary outdoor art pieces, uh, come along, walk around and have a look. He's also doing kinetic pieces, which have uh, been very good for him. But uh, I, I just visited this rather magnificent house he's built for himself and Annie, and I think, gee, he's done all this... With with uh, nothing more than welding little bits of yeah. stainless steel together and yeah. and, and and creating a uh, an impact which is you know, he sells this work right throughout Australia and mm. New Zealand mm. and and it's it's it there's not too many people have actually made a really good living out yeah. of uh, out of serious art yeah yeah mm. and are the artists that exhibit in your garden are they allowed to choose where it goes. Oh, it's half and a half. Yeah. <laughs> In consultation. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the borders are sacrosanct. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have had pieces in the uh, summer borders, uh, but only in the autumn uh, as they're falling to pieces. Well, not so much falling to pieces, but as they're going into autumn effects. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, no, those, we, we, the, the plants, uh, they, 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 uh, they, uh, they need the space at the moment. Exactly. You are tuned into the 3CR Gardening Show. Um, we are running through to 9.15, our usual time slot. If you'd like to phone in this morning and ask a gardening question, particularly if you want to ask uh, Jeremy anything about garden design or about uh, ornamentals, or if you'd like to ring in and ask Graham about roses, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. We've had a query from the outside line. Um, does the panel know if wisteria will cause problems with its roots lifting concrete driveways? And this is from a listener in Malvern East. Yes. Graham, you're nodding your head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in my building inspection days, yes, wisterias can be a little bit, um, no, a little bit, a, a big bit um, with movements with concrete and, of course, with foundations as well. They have a massive root system. Yes. They grow very big, don't they, given they time? They certainly do, mm. yes. Mm. Uh, I'd be very cautious with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there's your answer. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, as I mentioned, that number, if you'd like to join us, 94190155. We'd love to hear from you. Now, I've got uh, one notice which uh, I'm giving well and truly in advance. This is for your diaries. And uh, this is uh, taking place down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. And this is their Australian textile exhibition. This is coming up again March 5th to the 14th. Now, this is an annual event. Uh, This is their fifth time they've run the exhibition. And it's an exhibition of fabrics, crafts and quilting. Uh, Now, entry to the exhibition is free. It's being held in the Australian Garden Visitor Centre, as I said, from Saturday, March the 5th through uh, the Labor Day holiday to Monday, March the 14th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. Now, the exhibition fills the gallery area at the reception desk and also in the auditorium downstairs. So there's over 200 exhibits of patchwork, quilts, other items by some of Australia's leading um, quilting and textile experts, and they're all coordinated by uh, Lisa Chandler of Chandler's Cottage at Brayside, and uh, the uh, exhibition will also feature the international launch of Lisa's new Australian floral fabric range, which is entitled Melba. Now, uh, Lisa has also kindly donated, again, a large quilt. She does this each year, which is wonderful of her, which is being raffled by the Cranbourne Friends to assist in the ongoing development of Royal Botanic uh, Gardens Cranbourne. Now, tickets are $2 each for that, and they're obtainable at the exhibition. Uh, So uh, that's just a reminder, starting uh, March 5th, running through to March 14th. So, uh, well, well worthwhile. And of course, if you're going to go down to Cranbourne, you obviously have to go and have a good wander through, uh, through the Australian Garden. It's all free and, uh, just see what's happening over, over this, uh, summer. Well, it'll be going into an autumn garden at Cranbourne, but, uh, absolute delight always to go down there and allow yourself a good, oh, half day, three quarters of a day because, uh, there's lots of walking. There's also the uh, the bus you can hop on and off, which is great. Um, Good to do a bit of both, I reckon. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's interesting. You can you can jump off, uh, have a bit of a walk, and then hop on again as it goes further around. But uh, it's just a wonderful way of, of having a look at all the different aspects of the garden down there. Yeah, so there's a uh, lot going on, and I mean, there's guides down there as well if you want to learn about something specific. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. yep. Lots yep. going on, and they're very knowledgeable. They're they're great. Yep. That number, as I mentioned, if you'd like to join us this morning, nine four one nine zero one double. Five. Graham, where are you up to with roses? Where are we up to with roses? roses they're all are, potted? Yes, they're all potted. Oh, you've been a good boy. And we've been s- sending uh, roses all over Australia in the mail. Yes. And that's been an exercise in itself. Uh, but nevertheless, we're s- Diana's, um, it's bringing out her baker's daughter's tenacity because Diana's father was a baker at Kilmore for years. Okay. And her brother was and so was her mother. Right. But you have to be tenacious to get up at... Um, one o'clock in the morning and work right through the bewitching hour, as they call it. Oh, yes. Right through till um, eight or nine in the morning. But um, the tenacity of Diane has been such that um, she's even been able to challenge Australia Post. So that's magnificent. <laughs> but we've been um, able to send roses 
um, up into Queensland, New South Wales. It's amazing where people have been growing roses. And I recently spent a week up around the back of Cessnock and, and Newcastle having a look at this magnificent garden that's been established up there, a private garden in amongst all the wineries. Okay. At the back of Cessnock, and I could recommend it to anybody. It's a day, a day trip. It's like you could spend a whole day there. Right. Uh, about um, 18,000 roses in the garden. Wow. Along with um, a golf course, a magnificent water area, and they have, last year they had 150 wedding receptions in this garden. Okay. And it's a delightful place. Mm. I must say the, the Hunter Valley was absolutely magnificent. They've had a lot of rain there. And without a joke, the feed was over a metre high in the paddocks. Goodness. Just amazing, absolutely amazing up through that area. Wow. And the scenery is absolutely magnificent. Um, I was very surprised. It was the Grampians all over again in terms of the scenery around Dunkeld and what you see, you know, through Dunkeld, but um, ten times the amount of mountain ranges and, yeah, it's a great place to go and it's only... You know, it's a, so probably a, you know, a day and a half to get there. Yep. Mm. Yeah, um, that, that's the southernmost tip of the Grampians. is quite stunning in itself, mm. isn't it, mm. with the Mount Sturgeon and well, Mount Rupton. Well, this area in the Hunter Valley was, was ten times that amount of impact with, yep. with mountain ranges in, you know, in the background. Yep. A real lift of the soul. It was beautiful. And, um, of course, a, a, a lot of horse studs there. And um, the Middle Eastern people have got horse studs. I, I believe one sheik owns seven different horse studs in the area. So um, our girl that won Melbourne Cup last year was um, quite um, in her rights to say what she said about um, anybody can win the Melbourne Cup. You don't have to be <laughs> full of money. Um, so that was a great trip. But I, I must say that um, I was greatly heartened by a copy of a book that I got that's written by Tim Flannery. Now, people will remember Tim Flannery. Certainly. Um, Tim Flannery, of course, was the first climate commissioner in Australia. And he got dethroned, of course, by a government. And um, he's written a, a couple of books. And, and, and the book that I obtained a copy of, which I've done a, a preview of, it's called The Atmosphere of Hope. And it's about climate change. And um, it also proves a lot of stuff we get written, uh, get, get to read in the local press is, um, is, is very, very uh, distorted. And um, what Tim, of course, has done is, um, he's written uh, work on searching for, for solutions to the climate change. Now, us, us gardeners know a bit about this, don't we? We understand the climate change, but nonetheless, by the fact that we do grow things and people do grow things, and I'm especially heartened by the fact that there's so many um, vegetable gardens now in schools where children are being taught how to grow things in their own um, you know, in their own backyard with their parents. And in fact, there's a lot of young children now teaching parents how to do it, which is really great. And, um, what Tim Flannery has, has, um, done is he's, he, in his searching for solutions to the climate crisis, um, he, he explains about the research that's going on around the world at the moment. And the, um, uh, the preview from the Sydney Morning Herald about the book uh, states that Kim, um, Tim captures the imagination through his extraordinary range of argument. It's vivid imaginary and it's wealth of research. And it's very quick, quick-witted and with a lot of detail, which is great. 
as a practical issue, he talks about the value of our seaweed forests throughout the world and how they can be very much a part of, of working with climate change. All we have to do is work out how we can harvest the seaweed on, on, a, big, um, on a big scale. Um, he talks about, of course, about hybrid cars. How is harvesting seaweed going to help climate change? The, the, the climate change itself, mm-hmm. the fact that we do grow the seaweed, mm-hmm. and, of course, the seaweed is a renewable resource, and we know now that, of course, um, seaweed is being used in ice cream, cosmetics, and a lot of food because it's very, very rich in minerals, over 70 minerals in, in liquid seaweed. Um, in a very practical issue, I put um, liquid seaweed, organic liquid seaweed in my my fowl's water and um, of course with, if you work with fowls you've got an ideal medium of getting um, a, a, a meal in one in an egg mm. and fowls still um, amaze me the way they lay an egg I think that's you know five eggs in a week it's pretty pretty magic so I'm still intrigued by Tim's book so you say that he um, touches on things that maybe are misrepresented in the, in the media yes. what sorts of things? Well he, he looks at the truth about hybrid cars mm-hmm. and the practical realities of hybrid cars and the fact that you do have to plug in um, plug in, in, in to, to have the fuel for your vehicle yeah. um, the advances that are happening in that, that area and um, of course it's a big issue um, the, the biggest recreational activity in Australia, of course, is going for a drive in your car. It is. Followed by the visit to uh, cultural activities, art places, um, theatre and that sort of thing. And thirdly, the third biggest activity is sport. We would, you would think sport was right at the top, but it's not. Um, driving, going for a drive in your car is really important. And um, I think that the... Um, the fact that people can get in their car and go and have a very relaxing time, especially for their eyes and the, when they look at the landscape, and that's an important thing for us, especially when people are living in high-rise flats that are going up in multiplicities around Melbourne. Um, he, he looks at coal and the realities of coal, um, the wind generation, and he also looks at the nuclear aspect. So as a book, that can explain to people what's actually actually happening, um, I would recommend it. And it's by Tim Flannery, and the book's called Hope. And now, did you get a sense of hope when you were reading it? Or <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I, hope I did. just about getting the correct information or hope that maybe we can make a difference somehow? Yes, we can make a difference somehow. Um, and yes, certainly was hope. A great book to certainly re- read over Christmas time. Um, because I follow uh, the, the paper a fair bit and I am horrified of a lot of the stuff that's written in papers. And um, so the book I got from series in, in East Brunswick, the series um, Environmental Centre, and they've been working with solar energy for yonks. At, l- at least I know of it for at least the last 30 years. And uh, they're, of course, at series, is a whole series at series, of community gardens and it's a place that it's a re revamped old rubbish tip and um, they're using also fowl fowls there and you can go there and you can um, work in, get involved in the nursery and they grow all their own seedlings that mm. series and it's volunteer people and they do they have a lot of courses there as well mm-hmm. and I mean you, you're quite right there are 
seems to me there's so many people running courses now. There's uh, school gardens in so many more schools. There's um, people putting up um, gorilla plots. There's even you know the um, the more official 3,000 acres putting putting um, gardens in in vacant land until they're they're used by contractors. And yeah, so I don't know. It feels like gardening is I don't know. Maybe it did go into recession, but to me it feels like it's coming back. I feel gardening is going to be at the centre of <laughs> it's going to be the solution to quite a few of these problems. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so you know, re- uh, how on earth we make our energy needs um, um, self-sufficient. Uh, we're not uh, relying on sources uh, of, of, well, coal's got to be left in the ground, good grief. Well, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the, uh, but also the uh, nutrient recycling. Uh, we've got to f- and what you were saying about the seaweed, we've got to figure out ways of... of um, of keeping the, well, the food production going, which yeah. is not relying on sources of uh, nutrients, which are uh, going to be exhausted. I yeah. mean, because yeah. I was farming in Western Australia, and there's the soils there are very phosphate deficient, and because uh, farmers were very aware that there's uh, the phosph- uh, phosphate deposits around the world were running out uh, mm. 30, 40 years ago, mm. and they're uh, still running out. We've got to but ultimately, it's, it comes back to how we manage, I suppose, the world's resources so that, yes. uh, um, well, things do carry on. Yes. Uh, and we can't just retreat back into the, um, the inner suburbs and hope for the best. We actually have to get out there and find solutions. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and that's what we need. Some people like Tim Flannery actually throwing up solutions. Mm. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, just as an example, they've been working with uh, faber beans in Australia and um, there's a huge market in the Middle East and people in the Middle East make porridge out of the faber beans. And in order for Australia to stay competitive in the world, they have to get into breeding uh, top quality faber beans and that's where our future lays. We'll never, we'll never be able to f- feed the world. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yes, what does this porridge taste like? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, apparently it's a very Beans. strong part of their, their culture. In <laughs> okay, so it's been, so they, they've been eating this stuff for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, apparently, so, um, yeah. very popular in Yemen and in, and in Egypt and places like that. Okay. Well, we, we should uh, probably go to our first caller. We've got uh, our friend Pam and Kyneton. How are you, Pam? Hello. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. and Happy New Year. Welcome back, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> What's um, your question? I was, um, oh, you, a lot of very, very, being very philosophical there, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I agree about gardening. Since I've been up here, it's amazing how many people approach me. Um, because they know I garden, and you know, and it's and there's an interest in the town now about gardening, which I don't think was there before. Maybe not there before so much, but that's good to see. It does seem to be growing, doesn't it? Mm. Um, yes, and I think we're getting. You think we're getting better at it? You think we're? Well, I think that knowledge which has. Um, maybe died off a bit is, is starting to grow again, and um, we're, we're starting to get information back from from the older folk who you know have have mm. a lot more information to, to share with us. And I think we're starting to realise the importance of it and gather it again. Mm. Yes, that's all very good. Um, I wanted to ask Graham a question, please. Yes, Pam. 
Um, Graham, I've got some visitors coming to the garden in April, about um, mid-April, I think it is. And I'm hoping to still have some roses around here for then, mm-hmm. which if the weather's kind to me, I guess I shall. Um, but if I wanted to prune the bushes up to say that I'd have a flush of roses for that time, yes. about when would be a good time to to prune them and I guess give them a bit of extra feed, wouldn't you? Or some of that rock dust you gave me, which I've just started using. Yes. Um, well, Pam, if, you, if you're um, wanting to get roses um, for that date, you can use what we call a pivot date. Um, which they course use at Flemington Racecourse. Yeah. So um, 60 to 55 days before that actual day, yeah. you trim back your roses and trim back on a stem in the old language, which is around about, um, the stem should be around about four to six inches long. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so you can take back any rose that's finished. Yeah. Um, or if you want to be a little bit dramatic, you could take some of the flowers that are already on the bush and trim them back that far. And yeah. that's called, of course, some people call it summer pruning. Um, but if you work on uh, 55 to 60 days, um, you, you will be able to have lots and lots of flowers on the day they arrive in your garden. Wonderful. And would I need to give them a little bit of a feed as yes. well? Give them a boost. Use yeah. some, if you've got some rock dust, just yes, never, to, never use, never you. use a lot of the rock dust. No. And you're working with a bit of some volcanic soil, aren't you? Mm, well, that's what you can call it. Yes, it is actually. <laughs> and um, is. give, give them the amount of rock I find in it, Graham. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> so you could feed them up, and um, I'd also give them some liquid seaweed um, about twice or three times between now and then, over the over the leaves. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, so get to work on your calendar and count back 55, 55 to, to 60 days. Yeah, okay. I counted up my 21 days. My chickens are due out today. Yes. I'm very excited. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See you later yeah. and Good. thank you very much once again. Thanks, Thanks Pam. Pam. Bye-bye. I think that uh, 55, 60 days works with clematis growing in pots as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's around about the same period. If you right. cut back a clematis, clematis to about six inches high out of the pot, uh, midsummer or so after it's first finished flowering, it'll belt up and do the whole thing again. Yeah. And it's about the same period, I think, mm-hmm. but I'll have to count the days. And the great, great thing about clematis is that if you do cut the flowers, off, you can put them in a vase and they'll hold up very well in the vase too. So they're, they're a good um, a good flower to have a, as a display inside mm. as well. Yeah, they're, they're actually easier to grow in pots than they are on the ground generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they perform like clockwork. Amazing things. Mm. Well, it's obviously a morning for guests this morning and um, somebody else has just popped into the studio, our good friend Roger Elliott. Good morning, Roger. I don't know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're here, there and everywhere. New kitchens, new toilets. It is, yes. It's looking very spiffy in here, isn't it? Very sterile, somebody told me. I think that might have been me. I felt it was quite sterile. You sort of get the feeling that 3CR should be uh, uh, really quite grungy in a way. And And rusty. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So how's things in your world, Roger? Pretty good, thank you, AB. You might be able to give us a um, more specific update of what's going on at, at Cranbourne. Oh, look, there's there's lots of things happening. One of the main things happening at the moment is planning for a 
a big celebration in November. It's going to be called the Kangaroo Paw Celebration. Ah, yes. And uh, Angus Stewart is very heavily involved. It'll be a month of celebration. There'll be a special weekend of uh, various things happening, and then there's going to be a a three-day symposium, which will include science, botany, and also things for landscape practitioners and uh, botanic gardens, and then there'll be a, a day for people like you and me and gardeners and when is that that'll be november okay yeah so uh, so look out for it yeah and we've got people coming from overseas speakers and things like that already cut flower growers from california and uh, won't just be looking at kangaroo paw it'll be looking at the whole family yep and so there's things called hemodorums mm-hmm. and i know people who collect black flowers plants with black flowers well there's lots of hemodorums with black flowers and they're finding there's um, some really good medicinal value with some of the species of Hemodorum too. So we hope to cover things like that. And there's things called Conostylus, which are a fantastic group of... Yeah, I never I- imagined that Conostylus belonged to kangaroo paw. I was no, there amazed when I found out. There, yeah. There's some close. There's some fairly, fairly close when you look at the flowers. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess we should go to our next caller, Sue in East Ringwood. Um, no, Sue seems to have um, disappeared. Okay, well, she was going to talk about kangaroo paws. I thought that was going to be fantastic. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's why yeah. I was, you know, heard it into here. I, I gather somebody read there was going to be kangaroo paws. Ah, oh, something about kangaroo so, paws, right, yes. Yeah, Fair enough. told to come in. Yes. yes. <laughs> I can go now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So oh, that, that's the shame. I was, well, while you're here, Roger, yes. I remember driving past a bit of a road verge just near Magumba in Western mm-hmm. Australia many years ago, and there was a kangaroo paw flowering with a yellow flower, rich yellow flower, and glaucous, uh, blue glaucous foliage, but flowering much later than all the others, flowering in November, December. So I used to be driving with truckloads of wheat <laughs> during yeah, the yeah, harvest, yeah, yeah. and um, now there weren't very many of them. And I remember speaking to Kingsley Dixon, uh, the, the yeah. Kings Park, yeah. uh, at some point, round about then, so I'm I'm, I'm reaching back back to the 1970s, 1980s. Mm-hmm. So this is what I can't quite remember. Yeah. But he mentioned, oh yes, that one. It's uh, extremely rare. In fact, we're down to just a few clumps growing on this bit of road verge. In fact, I was driving past looking at the entire population of this kangaroo paw. Now, I can't remember the subspecies, but does that ring a bell with you? How tall? Um, around about about 40 centimetres. Okay. So, yeah, uh, so it's about medium height by the standards of those. Yeah, yeah. I'm not too sure which one that would be, but there, there are some which are in that area, which could, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. There are about a couple of hundred plants altogether. Okay, okay. Interesting. Well, it looks mm. like uh, we've got Sue back on the line. Good morning, Sue. Hello. Hi. And thank you. And thank you for taking my call. I'm really glad you're back. <laughs> we are here. We're here and waiting. Good. I have three questions. I'll try to be brief. The most important one is I have kangaroo paw. I have them front and back, so they're east and west. Um, this year, there's several different sizes. This year, I've got all the flowers on the top, but the flowers are not op- opening to any colour of... No colour at all. Okay. They're just bony, sort of beige ends. Now, do I cut them back at the stem or do I dig them out? Oh no, look, um, I just wonder whether they might have just become a little bit dry at the wrong time so therefore the stems haven't developed 
and and that happened the when we had the re- on top. The sorry they do have flowers on top but the flowers haven't opened to any color of any yeah. description they're nondescript there's no color at all okay yeah I, I i had the same experience with some and it was during the really hot spell when they were just de- coming just developing the flower stems were de- de- developing and they were slightly burnt on the top and therefore they didn't ah. open properly but look the thing is to cut them off right down at the base go down yep. as far as you can go yep and even how, how long have you had them in the ground two years okay look you could start even dividing some of them up and you could do that now okay yeah the one i've got in the front facing west is very big the ones at the back facing east are nowhere near as big they're quite small okay. they have they haven't prospered anything like the one in the front does sound like they could do with a bit of division. Yeah, could, to divide. I'd say I'd suggest dividing them. Do you know the names of any of them? One's called a big red. Big red, yeah, fine. You yeah, could divide um, that. A couple of them were orangey-coloured ones. Yeah, okay. Um, the other ones are smaller ones. I'm sorry, I don't have the name in. No, okay. Me. Yeah, some of the smaller ones um, they don't grow as uh, as vigorously as those taller ones. But you could divide up that. Uh, the big red, you know, maybe cut into four pieces. Don't don't try and go too small with them, and then you could just okay. just transplant well, them. Clean off all the old old leaves, especially if there's any with blackening on them. Just yes, there is blackening on them. Yeah, but okay. the people who grew these said that that you can't avoid that. No, that that's probably true to some degree. But if you keep them nice and vigorous, they don't usually have as much trouble with that. It's called ink spot, and uh, it's caused by a couple of things. But, uh, How sometimes much water do they need, please? Um, they don't like to be really dry. So if the, okay. if the soil is just moist, that'll be fine. No, it's certainly not been that. Certainly not been that. It's as dry as. Yeah, well, that, 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 I think that uh, tells the story. Contributed. And do you feed them at all, Sue? No, I didn't know that you should. Well, you, you yeah. know, they, they would certainly benefit from a bit of native plant fertiliser or some liquid seaweed. I will certainly do that. Now, can I move on to my second question? I'll try and keep it brief. I got talked into buying some eucalyptus elata. Now, uh-huh. they're a small tree. Yeah, small, small, tree. small tree that gets very big. <laughs> well, you know, they've been in here for two years. Yeah. Um, one, two of them I tried a bit of deep, deep, ste- deep stem planting. So I okay. I them in very, very deep, like yes. very deep. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, one of them is not not prospering as well. All three of them have got main stem is no bigger than my little finger. Okay. Very thin, yeah, weedy yeah, little stem. Yeah. Very thin. What uh, soil do you have, Sue? I've improved the soil immensely. They're in the east side of the property. It was basically grey clay, but it's had a huge amount of improvement. Sure, because with the deep planting, what um, what we've found over the years, because um, Angus has done a lot of experimentations, Angus Stewart has done a lot of experimentation with it, and um, I've, I've also um, played around with it a bit, and what we've found is that um, clay, you have limited success in clay soil, basically, because there's just not enough air further down as there oh, is in you know, sandier soil or loams. So the question is this, would I be better off pulling the really weak and the really weak one out? One's got a good crown, the other one's developing a crown, the stems on all three are very 
very weak, very tiny. I mean, I have to prop them up and I don't like doing that. But the third one doesn't have a good crown, seems to be suffering heat stress. Would I be better off just heave, heaving I'd, that one out? Yeah, I'd heave it out. Okay, heave it out. Mm. You've answered. How big do they grow? They told me they wouldn't grow more than four metres. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've been lied to. They, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll get up to 10, 15 Plus. Meters. Mm. Holy Moses. Well, maybe not the ones that you've got. It sounds like they're struggling <laughs> to get to a metre. Oh, well, yeah. we're now it's, it, it's two years, they're about, they're about a metre and a bit. Okay, yeah. So no, it's, it's uh, from, you see it growing in East Gippsland and it'll be along the rivers and uh, wettish areas and it can get quite, quite large, very, grace, so, very so graceful tree. So, yes, that's why I, mm. I loved it. I saw it in the nursery in York Road in, in York Road in Montrose. And t- they told me they were three years old. Oh, I don't think so. Now I, now I look at mine. But obviously, if they grow beside a river, they love water, don't they? Yep. Mm. Oh, I don't give them... No, but they, they, will, they will cope also with, you know, limited amount of moisture. They're, they're quite adaptable, but uh, they do like some moisture. How long would it take for them to get to that height? Oh, probably 15, 20 years. I'll be dead by then. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be fine. (laughs) It's a problem with running a nursery. If anyone's run a nursery, people ask, how big is this plant going to grow? And and, and you can give uh, an eventual height, which is uh, what the plant will reach in 50 or 100 years. So we can give them the height, which is what it will reach in about 10 years. And actually, the rule of thumb is that the, the height on labels is what the plant will do in 10 years, but it's going to keep on growing. Yes. So you just got to keep that in mind and actually do your own research, I think. Okay. Look, you've been really helpful. My last question, which is really quick, I heaved out my garlic. It's not what I expected. When do I plant garlic again, please? <laughs> you can plant garlic again now. Now? Yes. Okay. Yes, well, you can. You, right. Okay. Thank you very much. You've been so helpful. Good on you, Sue. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Bye Bye-bye. for now. So are you getting your garlic in, Graham? Yes. <laughs> Actually, you know, I heard something interesting on uh, on the ABC um, a couple of weekends ago that um, people were having success with planting society garlic to deter possums. They um, were planting it under roses, and um, apparently the possums just don't like it at all. They don't like the smell. Yeah, mm. don't like the mm. smells. I thought. Yeah. I think it's one of those things, isn't it? The whole alien family is uh, the the only creatures that like the smell of onions. Well. A people. <laughs> Everyone else has got more sense, so all the other animals. And, uh, yeah, it keeps off all the little beasties, that's for sure. Yeah, but we've got a bit of a strip of uh, society garlic. Yeah. And uh, uh, years ago I read that it's, uh, it's one of the more interesting edible, it produces one of the more interesting edible flowers. So, so that was the, the plan. And, yeah, they're, they're, they're uh, slightly garlicky, slightly nutty. Um, the, the flavour of the flowers and that, that soft lilac flower and, and flowering for ages as well and makes a nice border. Handy, mm. handy uh, plant. But you don't eat the, the bulb of it, do you? It's well, I've never tried. It is edible. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, so is onion weed, but you yeah, wouldn't really true. choose yeah. to eat it. Yeah. No, yeah. that's all, all members of the Allium family are, you know, actually edible in inverted commas, but as I say, you'd pick and choose. Um, for normal garlic, it's way too hot to plant it now. Traditionally, it's planted um, shortest day of the year, 
So you certainly wouldn't be planting it while we've got all this hot weather. It'll, yeah. Well, yeah, I stand corrected. In, in my cooler weather, <laughs> we, we start to plant now. Oh, yeah, but during yeah. a different climate, yeah, you yeah, see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole tricky part of, of I mean, not just uh, Australia-wide with our different climates, but, of course, even even around Melbourne or around Victoria, we get such a, because you can be on the coast, you can be yeah, up in Mount Macedon or mm. the Dandenongs or this huge variation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I guess also knowing... What varieties grow well in your garden is also, you know, an interesting part of gardening. I know for me with the uh, kale, I have grown Cavallo Nero really successfully, whereas the red Russian just didn't didn't want a bar of my garden. So yeah, I I think knowing not only your microclimate but uh, the the varieties that grow well in your garden. And that's interesting. I planted kale ten days ago. Look out! Stand back! It's gone like a rocket. Ah. And I plant. Yeah, and you're right, there are different varieties. And this particular variety, I don't know the name of it, but it looks very much like a cabbage type leaf. And I feed that to the fowls as well, and they love it. And um, but the red variety, yes, it'll do better later on. Mm. It's a, it's a, and, and then go right through the winter and into the spring, it'll look like a prehistoric monster once it starts to get to spring. It's really unusual. Yeah, and it lasts mm. a long time, I've yes. found. Yeah, yes. it just uh, keeps going as long mm. as you keep the water up. For those people who are, who are a bit um, bewildered by kale, what you can do with it, you can actually put it under, under a griller, put some light olive oil over the top, put a dash of salt on the top, and it'll leave it there for three or four seconds, and it'll be like potato chips. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, a hipster gourmet. It sounds very crispy. That's all I can say. A hipster gourmet. Three or four seconds, I said. <laughs> yes, no more. It's true. And this, you know, all this information that's, that's being shared. And, you know, we're learning things about, you know, being able to eat different parts of the mm-hmm. plants that you wouldn't usually eat, you know, the yeah. flowers and, you know, leaves of, you know, beetroots and whatnot that you wouldn't necessarily relate with um, being edible. We're, um, I think we're getting more and more information and knowledge as to, you know, what we can eat. Mm. Mm. And just, um, yeah, and I mean, I was eating the, um, some of my broccoli had gone to seed and before the aphids moved in, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of a feast on the flowers and um, steal a few from the bees. And, yeah, beautiful and sweet, but still with that slight broccoli taste. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Absolutely. That number again, if you'd like to ring in and ask a gardening question, we do have another 15 minutes, so if you'd like to jump on board, uh, do give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. We do have Jeremy Francis in the studio this morning from Cloud Hill and also Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clonbanane. Graham, we haven't mentioned that um, it's... St Valentine's Day today and I bet Diana's been busy, has she? Because roses, there are so many specialty roses with, with names, named roses that, that relate to, to special events like um, wedding anniversaries or birthdays or, yes. or remembrance roses. Um, is there anything for St Valentine's Day? Pam, I have a confession to make. You forgot. <laughs> Diana! Um, the, the, the real concept in most people's mind, or a lot of people's mind, is that they get a bunch of red roses. And, of course, those roses are grown in hothouses. Yes. And with a lot of chemicals. We won't talk about that. And the feeling with that is that um, that's what I give to my valentine on that day, and that's what I do. But to 
turn people over to a red rose that they can grow in their garden and be very creative with it is a real challenge for the rose industry. Mm. And there's very few red roses sold in pots for people for Valentine's Day. So that's interesting, isn't it? It is. But there's some magnificent reds. Mr. Lincoln is gorgeous with a fantastic perfume. There's another red come out called Father's Love. And it's as bi- nearly as big as a cabbage, and it has a magnificent perfume too. Um, there are other reds, as um, the red rose Tatiana, which is magnificent red. And um, but of course, if people get a bunch of roses um, given to them, they'll live for the most ten days in the vase, and it's finished. And so Valentine's Day and the memory's gone. But if you plant a rose, you can have the memory for Absolutely. twelve months of the year. Yeah, I'm going to say it's much better value because come Valentine's Day, roses seem to triple in price, don't they? Well, I, I heard. Actually. I actually heard this year there's been um, a shortage in supply of red roses, mm. and so they were going to be priced through the roof. And they've been actually trying to encourage people to not want red. Mm-hmm. This year, so oh. it'll be interesting. That's that's <laughs> well. <laughs> just as as we're speaking uh, and, and going slightly off red, but the the crimson purples. Are you do are you um, doing much with the David Austin roses? The, yes. Uh, yeah. The the um, now the crimson purple was always a bit of a problem in those. Uh, Old-fashioned mm-hmm. uh, repeat flowering roses. Uh, David Austin is struggling to, I think, uh, to produce a really good one. Uh, he's been, uh, you know, that that's his holy grail, and it's, it has been so for the last 35, 40 years. Uh, how's how are they going with the? Well, how's he going? I guess with the two or three new ones that, that have been released. Well, there's a, a rose called Munstead Wood, which is one of the David Austins, yep. and it doesn't get very big; gets a bit higher than the knee. There's another fantastic um, rose called uh, William Shakespeare 2000, and but. The William Shakespeare 2000, if people are looking at that, get that rose, not William Shakespeare. The William Shakespeare rose is a dog. Oh, sorry. So, <laughs> dog rose. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's an updated version, uh, yes. uh, updated, yeah, mm. which kind of illustrates the problem, isn't mm. it? So the, the original William Shakespeare mm. is no good, no. but this one's much better. Yes. And what happens in Australia is that the reds, in the warmer weather show up more purple yeah. but as they get into the cooler climate again in, in autumn they'll come back to what I call a true red or a black red yeah. but okay. the purple reds are really interesting yes. I've, yes. I've, I've kind of enjoyed them as you much like as any of those colours well yeah. in a way I prefer yeah. them mm. uh, yes. they, they kind of meld into other colours better mm. I feel mm. but but and, and, of course, they hark back to the old uh, Gallica roses. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the old French roses mm. of 200 years back, yes. uh, which were predominantly that colour, mm-hmm. um, pinks and these deep crimson purples. I yes. mean, the red, red rose that Robbie Burns was talking about, when he wrote that poem, there wasn't a red rose. Mm-hmm. They were all purples. Yes. And uh, red roses only appeared when they started crossing China roses with European roses. yes. yes. So, uh, so that you know, red rose is a very recent phenomenon. Yeah. But, but to go back to get those old-fashioned style roses into a repeat flowering rose is yeah. that's a very exciting thing. And yeah. yeah that's, so that's interesting. It's been a big challenge. So Munstead Wood, and of course Munstead Wood was uh, Gertrude Jekyll's old garden, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And there is a rose called Gertrude Jekyll, which is a which is a lighter mm. purple or lighter purple pink, and that's magnificent. But what you're talking about, Jeremy, is roses with perfume. It's, they're magnificent, the, yep. the Austins. But there are a few now coming on the market that are Austins that will hold up in the vase, 
well for 10 days or fortnight, but you need to be specific as to what you want. But some of the garden roses, a lot of the Austin garden roses, you can float them with a short stem in a bowl on the table, and they're really very quite good, and you'll get um, a week or 10 days out of them in a bowl, but they're not really good in a vase. They're, um, in some ways, they're probably rather top-heavy. Yeah, slightly nodding flowers mm. sometimes. Yeah. But all got a perfume, which is really yep. fantastic. Yep. Yeah. We must get to our next caller. We have Anne in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, I actually think Anne's uh, still on the phone with Virginia, so for the time being, we'll go to Lorna and Dramana. No, we won't. Let's, uh, let's try. Anne, are you there, Anne? Uh, yes, oh, I, I hope I'm here. Uh, yes, uh, one of my friends, a neighbour of mine, has got the red rose, Mr Lincoln, and every time you walk past her unit, there's an abundance of perfume. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. But to get to the point of my phone call, I've got a wild fig tree. It's only a small one. The birds planted it. It's got, um, when it's in fruit, it's got the purplish brown on the outside and the reddish colour centre on the inside. So I want to know, is there anything that I can do to get it to produce more fruit and should I fertilise it and how often a year does it fruit? Some fruit twice, you see. If it's, if it's come from seed um, and it's, it really just needs time, I mean, you're lucky that it's actually fruiting and fruiting well. So um, as it matures, you should get more fruit. It does need some water. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too fussed about you feeding it. Um, I mean, they're a Mediterranean. They, they usually live in very poor conditions, but it does need some water. And I have at the front of my face growing very wild, possibly a little bit too wild, uh, a green shrub with a shiny leaf. You might know the one. Well, probably uh, need a little bit more information. Does it have flowers on it? Uh, it has orangey-coloured um, uh, little berries on it once a year, I think it is, which the birds go for. But it's been growing and growing and growing for years, and it's... I don't know whether to cut it back or what because... How big is it, Anne? It's giant. Giant. And um, is it a problem for you? Is there any reason that you'd want to take it out? No, I wanted to shade my lounge room window and also for the birds somewhere where they can sit in the hot summer days. But the trouble is it's sort of of encroaching onto the lawn a bit. Sure. Well, I mean, if if it's a bushy shrub, the birds probably love it. I, c- I can't think of what it could be just on, on that description. I can't see any reason for um, for not chopping it back, though, to be no. quite yeah, honest. If it's yeah. encroaching on your, on your lawn, <laughs> That's right. um, you know, by all means, chop it back. It's almost blocking my way to the gas meter. Yeah, well, definitely give it give it a prune back. I mean, you, that's I mean, with plants that are encroaching on pathways or, or driveways or anything like that, yeah, definitely prune it back. But I mean, if you think it's a problem for you and you want to put in something more suitable for that area that will really encourage the birds, then yeah, just um, go ahead. Oh, they seem quite happy with it. Okay. Try trying desperately to think of something with <laughs> glossy green leaves and, and green orange orange, uh, orange fruits and perspiration tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're. it's a weed. It's a giant weed. 
Uh, and how giant is it? Uh, I'd say it's probably about seven foot six. Oh, cause it just give it a good shot. Yeah, I, it, it, it could be. That, that's what it could be. So, uh, put a spore on. Angelatum or something? Uh, well, Tabara has uh, has orange. Um, fruits, uh, berries, but uh, what else? <laughs> There's one or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's a you know, one of those twenty questions. Absolutely, <laughs> and and if you're trying to attract the birds, there's definitely a whole lot of plants that will do the job and better again, than I thought. If I let it take over the lawn, I won't have to worry about mowing the lawn. Yeah. But yeah, eventually, well, you won't be able to get into my place for this great big gigantic weed. Yeah, I so look so, certainly of the uh, uh, potosporum, you can chop it and you can do whatever you like absolutely right. in fact I, I mean you're in control of it Anne. I'm, you know I? yes you are <laughs> you are you just got to believe it <laughs> oh, okay thank you very all much right. thanks bye Anne. bye bye all right and we'll go next to Lorna and Dramana. good morning Lorna you there Lorna hi Lorna are you there Hello, Lorna. She's, she's busy listening to us on the radio. Yes, yes. Hello. Oh. Hi, Lorna. How are you? Lorna, can you... I didn't know whether I'm back. Lorna, can you please turn your radio I off? I have. I'm very sorry. That's, That's okay. Right. But no, uh, what, um, mainly what I want to know is that uh, we've got that beautiful red geranium uh, growing and we've cut a few, uh, quite a few splits and... Um, One's grown, um, in particular, has grown about six inches high. I don't know if you remember the imperial uh, measurement. But um, I want to know, can I dig it up because I'd like to give it away? I'm sure you can. Uh, there was one, there's one that's been released over the last few years called, the uh, last two or three years, called Big Red. Uh, oh, so good. Pelagonium Big Red. Yes. And, yes, you can, uh, that, that's a pretty safe plant to dig up. Oh, great. Oh, I'm real thrilled. <laughs> you can also take cuttings if you want to. They strike very, very easily. Yes, well, that's, uh, we've done a few, and um, this one in particular is gone like a rocket. Yep. Oh, big red. I must remember that. Try and take, a, you know, as big a root ball as you can, but it'll be fine, as I say, even if you yep. just take lots of cuttings off it and give those away. Yes, I'll, I'll do that as well. Yeah. When, when you go to inquire about it, don't get a big red tomato, will you? Am I getting a kangaroo? Not, I hope not. <laughs> okay then. Good. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Lorna. Bye. Bye. Um, we are almost uh, out of time. Um, Ab, we haven't quickly mentioned anything that's happening in your garden, apart yeah. from lots of kangaroos well, on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, oh, I got attacked by a skink. I thought that was pretty interesting. I was, I was sitting, sitting in the uh, downstairs room. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I was just sitting there, and we've got gaps under our doors, and the skinks kind of come and go as yep. they please. And um, I had red nail polish on and bare feet, and I'm pretty sure it thought I was a strawberry or thought my nails were a strawberry anyway. And it came over and, and took a big bite on my big toe, which was yeah rather amusing. So it actually well, took a bite. It took a bite of my toe, which, yes, it was very funny and, and didn't hurt in the slightest. But um, actually, one thing I did want to mention was I've come across this um, app, and you can also uh, use it on the computer, um, called Feral Scan. And it's um, a way of tracking uh, pest 
animals and birds and um, even um, cane toads are on there and carp and it's an Australia wide app so it's called uh, Feral Scan and um, you know for different different parts of Australia obviously there's camels wild dogs, wild pigs, rabbits Indian miners, starlings and uh, yeah carp and cane toads so you can jump on there and um, put in your location and say how many rabbits you've seen or how many wild pigs heaven forbid that you've seen them um, and it's, it's it's interesting because there's, you know, the map of Australia and it shows where people have put sightings in. And then the idea with all that uh, information is going to be to um, for local councils to create um, eradication programs and, and control programs. So I, I thought that was really good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very and, interesting. And just along those lines, the conversation from earlier <laughs> on the hazelnut mites, um, certainly people in the Dandongs and people... In the eastern suburbs, I think, of Melbourne, uh, Google uh, uh, um, hazelnut mites and and make themselves familiar with uh, that particular nasty little beastie which has just appeared and and, uh, let authorities know the... uh, plant protection people. Absolutely. Uh, mm. Are there any photos up on on the site? Have you? Uh, well, had a look I'm, at well it, I'm not seen it. Uh, You've in not fact, seen I'm it. I'm just going on what you, you were saying yeah, this morning. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's my job uh, for today. Go back and and check this out because I was. Uh, not across that myself. Okay. The alert actually came from uh, the Nursery and Garden Industry yep. Victoria, NGIV. Mm. Um, and uh, so if you went into their website, yes. they do have um, a few photos. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, if you look at uh, any of the, um, hopefully, the new pest sites or even some of the government um, agency sites, you might be able to actually see, you know, the marks they leave to yep. help with That's identification. Absolutely. It's crucial for gardeners to get on top of this straight away. It is away. crucial. It really is. And as I say, I might just give out those phone numbers and uh, again because it is very important. Um, if you do suspect you've got an infestation, the number to call, and it's toll-free, is 1-800-084-881 or take a photo or two uh, along and send it in with your contact phone, email it, to plant.protection at ecodev, that's E-C-O-D-E-V, dot vic, dot gov, dot au. And, uh, and although it's called hazelnut mite, it's affecting a lot more than hazelnut. A lot more all, than all hazelnut. The, all the way through to beans, so which, help me. Which, which means if we don't get on top of this early, it's really going to spread. So, yeah. And um, especially for Dandenong gardeners, because that's where they first spotted it, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a lot of horticulture. There's, uh, and, and there's a big problem in that there's a lot of growers who are sending... Plants interstate, and and uh, so yeah, th- this can spread very very quickly if it's in the Dandongs. Absolutely, mm. yep. Okay, well we've run out of time for yet another week. Uh, we will be back again next Sunday, of course, at seven thirty. A big thank you to all the panel, um, and also to Virginia, who's been handling all the uh, calls this morning. Uh, please uh, make sure you tune in next week. I know uh, some of you. Uh, Got a bit used to no gardening show over the uh, Christmas New Year period, but we're we're back uh, ready and willing to go for another 12 months. So we'd love to hear from you next week. Uh, until then, bye for now.